in chapter 40, verses 8, all the way through the end of 41, we know that God unleashed His most devastating correction against Job. Really, in, in the whole book, in the whole book of Job, it's the most devastating correction, but um, of, of everything that God said, this is really the, this is the hardcore correction, and, um, and it, it is what finally broke Job's self-righteousness and pride and, and the attitude that he developed against God because of all the suffering, which I think we all understand, but um, this, this is it. This is the section that just unfolded him. As we go into chapter 42 next week, we'll see his repentance right off the bat. But we're still in this area here dealing with this subject matter. Um, you know, Job had implied that he could essentially replace God and maybe do a better job of running the universe. So God challenged him to prove that he had the sort of essential uh, attributes to be able to pull off the job, the, the very things that, that one would need to be able to, to, to run and rule over the whole world. Uh, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 14, we looked at the first six of those attributes. In chapter 40, verses 15 to 24, well, we kind of began to, to look at the, the final and seventh attribute, which is sovereign control. And uh, we learned last week that God challenged Job to demonstrate that he possessed this attribute of sovereign control by pretty much killing and or controlling a terrifying creature called the behemoth. Uh, and we don't know exactly for sure what this animal was, hippo, uh, but um, it's kind of hard to figure out what it was. And uh, I, I like what my wife said. Uh, she said, well, maybe it was kind of a super hippo that aren't around anymore today. And I thought, eh, sounds like a normal hippo. I don't even know what a super hippo would be. But then I started thinking about kind of the prehistoric era, and there was a super elephant called a woolly mammoth, Right? That was an elephant that was two to three times the size of a normal elephant, much more aggressive, much more dangerous. We know that those existed. So if there was a super elephant called a woolly mammoth, why couldn't there be a super hippo called a behemoth? Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. I don't think it was a rhino, although Ryan will argue with me till the cows come home, till the rhinos come home, I should say. I don't think it was an elephant, and I don't think it was a type of dinosaur because I just don't see how a dinosaur fits with the, everything that's described. So in the next section, that's what we learned last week, in the next section, God continues to challenge Job to demonstrate that he possesses this attribute of sovereign control. He's not done with that argument, and this time he, he presents to Job an even larger and more dangerous and more terrifying creature. Job, if you're going to run all things, you need to show that you have sovereign control by dealing with and controlling or slaying what is called Leviathan. And I'll tell you what, the actual, or I just should say the identity, the actual identity of this creature is, it's far more obscure than behemoth. There's a lot of description here. In fact, you could, you could give the example of in Job uh, chapter 40, he spends, God uses nine verses to describe behemoth, right? It's verse 15 all the way through 24, nine verses. There's an entire chapter devoted to Leviathan, 34 verses of description. So there's more description here, but when we study and read through the description, we're pretty much left at the end of it but going, I, I, I guess it was a marine dinosaur because it just doesn't fit. It certainly doesn't fit a crocodile, as a great many people say. It doesn't fit 
um, anything like that. So it's just, it, the, the identity is more obscure because, I mean, this thing breathes fire. And I don't know if that's just hyperbolous poetry that's being used there. It's, it's hard to detect what language and the intent, but it just doesn't really fit with anything that we're familiar with. So we will get into a few more theories in a moment. Uh, but the goal of this message won't be to try to figure out what Leviathan is. I think, in a way, I made the mistake last week of, of that was kind of the purpose of the sermon, was to figure out what behemoth is. And um, my wife lovingly let me know, you spent a lot of time on the hippo. And the, the hippo or the Leviathan or the lizard, it's not irrelevant, but it's not the point of the text. So I'm going to be a little bit more, I'm not going to be as descriptive or trying to really just figure out what this thing is, because I don't think that that's the goal. And I apologize for having a really long sermon last week. I can no longer make fun of Cameron for being the record holder, because I blew it out. Almost the entire service was the message. It was an hour and 20 minutes, so I apologize for that. If you enjoyed it, wonderful. If not, blame somebody else. Um, so take your Bibles and turn over to Job 41. We're going to try to quickly deal with all these verses. I don't want to rush, but I don't want to spend too much time on the animal itself. Uh, we're going to actually look at three things today, three A's. Anytime I divide the text that way, it should go technically faster. Uh, but we're going to have three A's. And I want to pray before we start looking at this, this crazy, crazy creature and this challenge to Job. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you direct me and guide me. I pray that you're glorified during this message, that we are built up and edified and encouraged today. I think you're going to embolden those who are yours that are here today. I think you're going to embolden us and encourage us and help us to see the victory that Christ has so that we can walk in the freedom he has secured for us. So uh, we want you to get all the glory, and we want to be built up and conformed to the image of Christ just a bit more. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. We're going to look at the second terrifying creature that Job must either slay or control to display that he has this sovereign control attribute and run the whole universe. It is the Leviathan. Number one, first thing about the Leviathan, we have to look at its autonomy, its freedom, its ability to move about and do whatever it wants. And these are big chunks, by the way. This is represented in the first 11 verses. So Leviathan's the first A, Leviathan's autonomy, verses 1 through 11. We'll start at verses 1 and 2. This is the very next thing that God says. God is not giving Job a break after hammering him over behemoth. He goes right into this next creature, and he has an objective here to unfold this servant, just to break him. And he says this, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? And he says, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Stop there. Without any pause whatsoever, God continues his long, long cross-examination of Job with yet another object lesson, the Leviathan. God begins by asking Job some rhetorical questions concerning this terrifying yet mysterious creature. First question God asks him, and he doesn't expect an answer from Job, and if Job does answer, it should be a no. Uh, but first he asks him, can you, Job, in fact, draw this Leviathan creature 
out of the water with a fish hook? Or could you also press down his tongue with a cord? Is this something that you could do? And you need to pay close attention to the wording. We've got fishing tackle being mentioned here. A fish hook, that's part of fishing tackle. Any fishermen in here? I used to do quite a bit of fishing, loved it. Had a little boat for a while, had kids, no time for the boat. You'd think having kids, you'd want to take them out on the boat, but you know, hey, whatever, it didn't work that way. So I know a little bit about fishing, but we see here fishing tackle being expressed, the fish hook. What does that tell us about this creature? This is a, a water creature. This is a sea-bound uh, creature, so to speak. This is a marine creature, right? You don't use a fish hook to catch a blue-belly lizard off of a pine tree. You would use a net or something like that, or maybe a BB gun. So first things first, we are noticing that a fish hook is being used, so this creature has something to do with the sea. And uh, so the use of the fish hook tells us something about Leviathan. Maybe it was a, a, even a, a fish. Some say that it might have been a whale or a very large shark, like a megalodon or something of that nature. Um, some say that it could have been some kind of semi-aquatic creature, kind of like the hippo that goes in the water or out of the water, but fishhook seems to still be so specific to something that belongs in the sea at all times. And then, of course, there are some who, thinking in terms of the natural world and, and the animal kingdom, they think it was a crocodile. They think it was like maybe a Nile crocodile, which are the largest crocodiles in the whole world. But, you know... I. This is, I don't know, almost 4,000 years later, I've never seen anyone try to catch a crocodile with a fish hook. So, I mean, I, there's no such thing as fishing for crocodiles. So I don't see how that really works here. Of course, others say whale or shark. Um, some say it was some kind of a large sea reptile, maybe a species of dinosaur like the Plesiosaurus, maybe that creature. Um, You've got also mythological views, okay, meaning this is, Leviathan is within some ancient myths, meaning it's not actually a real creature, it's just mythological. And to be honest with you, the discussions around Leviathan, not so much as around Behemoth, but around Leviathan, primarily mythological. Most people think that this was either a prehistoric type of dinosaur, sea dinosaur, but the majority go in the direction of myth. Even good scholars and, and good theologians suggest maybe that this was some kind of a mythological beast. Uh, in Jew, in Jew, believe it or not, the Jews do have a mythology. Okay, they, they don't just have Judaism, but they have mythological views as well, especially the ancient Jews. Uh, and they suggest in their mythology pertaining to this beast that it's a primordial sea serpent. So the ancient Jewish myths would say this was some kind of a primordial sea serpent. And another prevailing mythology back in these days was Mesopotamian uh, mythology. And in, in that particular thread of mythology, now these predate Greek and Roman mythology, in the the Mesopotamian theology, Leviathan, is connected to the Ugaritic myth of Baal. There's a false god in, in the Old Testament that's called Baal. Some call it Baal, but it's actually pronounced Baal, B-A-A-L. So Baal I would prefer. 
If you say bail, I'm going to bail on you. I'm not going to listen to you. So, uh, so they think that in the Ugaritic texts, which are some ancient texts that, that were discovered not too long ago, they're ancient texts, and they deal primarily with Mesopotamian mythology and, 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 and religion. This is some kind of a beast that is related to Baal, that false god that, sadly, a great many Israelites came to worship later. So is it a creature? Is it a, is it a myth? Uh, there are actually several references to Leviathan in the Old Testament, by the way, which I think is important. Uh, most passages describe Leviathan as a real creature, a legitimate animal that lived long ago, uh, that was familiar to people. And in Job 41, that's how the animal is described. It doesn't come across as mythological. It doesn't come across as metaphorical or allegorical. It's, it's spoken about in, jo in Job 41 as a legitimate animal that Job knew a lot about just as with Behemoth in the previous section. So there's a number of passages that deal with it. Uh, Job 41, we know, Psalm 104, verses 25 to 26. In that text, God is praised as the one who created the habitat for the Leviathan. It says this, here is the sea. Okay, so fish hook, sea, we know it's a sea monster. It says, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. So in this particular text, God is being praised for creating a habitat, which is the sea that is large enough and safe enough for a creature that's basically as big as a ship to play in. So in this psalm, it's a real animal that dwelt in the sea. The main point being only a great God could have created Leviathan and made a place big enough for it to play, the sea. In Psalm 74, verse 14, Leviathan is mentioned and is described as a multi-headed sea serpent that is killed by God and then given as food to the Hebrews while they were in the wilderness. That's an interesting description there. It literally says this, Psalm 74, verse 14, speaking of God, you crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan, you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness, creatures of the wilderness being the Israelites. And we're going to talk about this way later in the message, but I think this is, this is it's being used as a metaphor here for Israel's enemies. Uh, but it's multi-headed here, which is very interesting. So, of course, the question has to be, what is this beast? What is Leviathan? Is it a marine dinosaur? Is it a semi-aquatic reptile like a really, really big and ferocious crocodile? Is it a mythological monster? Is it a metaphor? Well, we, we really just don't know exactly what it is. I tend to think that it's all of the above with the exception of a crocodile. I don't know. I just know this. In Job 41, it is described as a real creature with real features. That's what I know. It's not metaphorical here. It's not mythological. It's not an allegory for something else. It is described as a real, real animal. And, but the problem here is that, and this is why people go in other directions, we start thinking of it as a legitimate real animal. The, the trouble is some of the description of it is very fanciful. 
fire breather. We're not even aware of anything that ever breathed fire. So it's that, that, those descriptions, those aspects of its identity that cause us to think that it's probably more mythological. But hey, there could have been dragons. I don't know. I mean, most of the world believes there, there were some kind of dragon, especially Harry Potter world. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Some of the descriptions are pretty uh, fanciful. Uh, they do go well beyond what we see today. But, you know, there are creatures that existed that go well beyond what we see today because they are, in fact, extinct. Amen? know what it is, but we know that it was deadly. It was lethal. It was big. It would waste you in half a second if you went near it. And I can tell you this, Job knew what it was, because why would God give him an example that he knew nothing about? He knew what this creature was. When God said Leviathan, he went, oh no. When God said Behemoth, he went, oh no. He knew what these beasts, he knew what these dangerous creatures were. And when God asked him if he could catch this big, enormous, dangerous sea creature with a fish hook, and then maybe tie down its tongue with a cord, this is like really kind of funny and maybe subdue it and domesticate it with a rope through his nose and then and then put a hook through his jaw this is all like submissive language like you take this thing and you make it your pet when God said could you do this with it we know Job would have said no are you crazy why are you asking me this because you're challenging me that's why I'm asking you this if you can't control this creature how can you control me that's the point so, no, he, he would have said, there's no way I could do this if he were permitted to answer. And I think he could have answered, but no, he could not bind up this creature or go fishing and look, hey, we got a live one. I've got a big tuna. Oh, no, it's a Leviathan. Would have never happened. That's the point. Verses 3 to 4, continuing to describe Leviathan, it's almost like God says, you know, if you were to talk with him, I don't think the animal spoke, Right? Uh, verses 3 and 4, will he make many pleas to you? This is like the idea if Job had, was able to catch it, would it plead? Would he put me back in the water? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Because, <laughs> you know, dragons are real tender. I guess the one in never-ending story was. Uh, will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? I mean, these questions are like absolutely ridiculous just as questioning God on his providence is absolutely ridiculous. The questions are ridiculous. This is probably one of the funniest chapters in all of Scripture. It really is. God is playing with Job, and Job's just going, I am stupid. He doesn't know what to do here. Is this the type of creature, he says to Job, that, you know, Job, you could talk with and, and maybe reason with? Is this the type of creature that if you were to get in a tangle with it, would it make pleas to you, like, please let me go? Would it do that? Would it speak soft words to you? Uh, Job, Job's thinking, it doesn't speak, it breathes fire, right? Would it make some kind of covenant with you and maybe it become your bond servant? You know, it would just serve you all the days of your life. Is that what you could strike up that kind of deal with this creature, Job? Could you turn it into your guard leviathan and put it in your courtyard so nobody steals your civic or your camel? I mean, this is literally what God is doing to Job here. He is, he, is, he is mocking Job. I wonder if God is laughing as he's saying these things. And the definite answer from Job would have been, no, I, I couldn't. I can't reason with this creature. I can't make a covenant with this creature. It's, 
It's not how it's wired. It's, it's dangerous. So uh, the answer, again, would have been absolutely not here. Verse 5, and I, this is the funniest verse in the text, by the way. God says to him after Job's envisioning what a Leviathan is, he probably sees one in the distance going, this guy, God's crazy. Will you play with him as with a bird? You know, Polly want a cracker? You got to pick up Leviathan in your hand and stroke it like a bird? And I think the second half of the verse is even more entertaining. Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> this is hilarious. This has to be one of the funniest lines in all the scripture. He's literally asking Job if he could just pick up Leviathan and play with him like a pet bird, right? Dumb and dumber, you know, he's petting the bird, the head's taped on. Could you do something? You remember that? That's pretty hilarious. I don't know why I brought it up, but it's funny. But could you, could you literally do that with Leviathan? You know, just pick it up. Oh, look at the little parakeet. Uh, yeah, you know. Could you? No, Job knows he couldn't do that. And in an even more condescending and patronizing and humorous way, he says, could you make it a pet for your daughters? Could you put it on a leash and walk it around Central Park? Roof, you know, roof. I mean, this is, this is funny. You guys aren't really laughing, Daryl is, because he thinks it's really funny. But I mean, just think if this is in a tornado, this is being said. So you've got that going. You've got the whirlwind. You've got God correcting him. And he's asking if he could take this giant dragon-like creature and pet it in his hand and teach it to do tricks and to speak like a parrot, like a bird, and then to put it on a leash and, you know, have his daughters walk around. Let's take it to the park, Sally. Right? This is funny. I mean, this, I, don't, I don't know what was going through Job's mind. He might have thought that God lost his mind. Um, but like I said, it was crazy for Job to question God's providence or to question anything. So the crazy one here really isn't God. I think what God's doing is giving Job a taste of his own medicine. You know, it's absolutely nuts for you to question my providence. It's nuts for you to question my authority. It's nuts for you to question my sovereignty. This is the point. So, you know, I'm going to ask you some ridiculous questions about animals that you know you can't have as pets. That's the mocking that's going on here. And it's, it works. It does the job. Uh, we'll keep going. He's not done with him yet. I think he could have stopped after that. Job was done, but God's not done. Verse 6, will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? So what comes to mind here? Like a fish market. Could you catch Leviathan with a fish hook? and then take it over to the local fish market and then have them, you know, chop it up for sushi? Give it over to the merchants and let them sell it? Is that something you could do? Um, this is what he's asking him. In fact, I did a little research in 2019. A Japanese restaurant chain paid $3 million for a 612-pound bluefin tuna. $3 million for a 600-pound fish. The meat grade on this fish was unbelievable. It was the highest, absolute highest quality in the world. This was at the Toyosu market in Tokyo. Why do I say this? Because that's what God is saying. Could you do that with Leviathan? You take it over to the Japanese fish market and parse it out and sell it? Could fish traders do any of these things with Leviathan after you've sold it to them? Could this spectacular creature be divided up among the merchants? Of course, Job's answer has to be no stinking way. This creature was too big, too powerful, too dangerous to be at man's disposal ever. It's not a tuna. 
right? You know, he, you get it? You know this from like Schwarzenegger? It's not tuna. Verse 7, he just, he keeps unleashing on Job. He's hammering him here. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Could you do that? What comes to mind now? Whaling, right? Whaling. How did the ancient whalers get whales? Spears, gaffs, these sorts of things. I suppose they probably still do it today. I think it's pretty tragic. Uh, but that's what he's saying now. Could you, could you deal with a Leviathan as the whalers deal with whales, with harpoons and fishing spears? Could you do that? The answer, again, would have been no way. And why is that? Because this creature's, it says literally in the text, his back is made of rows of shields, verse 15. This thing has scaly shields for an um, epidermis, for its exterior flesh. So uh, you're, you're throwing these sharp objects at it. They're not going to penetrate its armor. And then it also says in verse 22a, in his neck abides strength. So uh, you just this thing's just too big, too strong, too armored to be fished or to be treated as a whale of some sort. In other words, harpoons and fishing spears, they're just going to bounce off this beast because he's covered with thick scales like a dragon, or at least like what we think a dragon has because we really don't have a true reference to that. Uh, verses 8 to 10a, this is also a funny verse. God's again playing with Job. He says, lay your hands on him, remember the battle, and you will never do it again. Uh, go attack one and see what happens, and then you let me know if you'd ever do that again, if you're stupid enough to do that again. That's what he says. And he says this in verse 9, Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of Leviathan. He says in verse 10a, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. So uh, literally God is asking him in verse 8, you know, if you want to go ahead and try to lay hands on this creature, um, you'll never forget the what he does to you. You'll never forget the battle or how you're pulverized by him. And then you'll never, ever, ever try that again. Why? Because Job would get supremely thrashed, if not killed. Um, verse 9, God describes boastful men who have false bravado, you know, false machismo, those big talkers, especially in the fishing circles, like, man, you should have seen what I caught or what I brought in. Those types he's addressing here. Dudes that might brag about taking on Leviathan. Uh, you know, I think I could fight him. I think I could fish him. I think I could hook him and bring him out. You know, the strong and skilled fishermen. God says these guys have foolish, false hope because when this beast appears, they don't brag. They don't go after it. They actually melt in fear and are, as God says, laid low. In verse 10a, God says men lack the kind of fierceness that would be required to even dare to stir up Leviathan. So what God is doing is, is, is building intimidation in the creature's features. This thing is just not something that you take as a pet, not something you divide up as sushi. It's not something, that, it's not something you mess with. And Job knows all of this. Verses 10b to 11. And I love this because this is the connection between this horrifically scary and dangerous animal, now God is connecting it to himself. 
God is not a horrifically scary, terrifying creature. God is, however, a consuming fire and to be feared and is terrifying in his judgment and wrath. And so look at what he says next, playing off of the terrifying creature Leviathan. Who then is he, is he who could stand before me? If you could not stand up to Leviathan, how are you going to stand up to me? If you can't handle this, fierce, this fearsome creature, how are you going to stand up to its more fearsome, holy, righteous, all-powerful creator? How are you going to do that? This is what he's saying. He says also in verse 11, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So verse, 10 is, verse 10b is very simple. If a man cannot take on Leviathan, how's he going to take on God? How are, how are you going to do that, Job? You couldn't handle Behemoth, which is a lesser creature. You couldn't handle Leviathan, which is a greater creature. And I am the creator of all of them. How are you going to stand up to me? If man cannot stir up and stand before this mighty creature, how could man stir up and stand before its almighty creator? That's the logic. If this creature is too much for Job to handle, then surely its creator is far more uh, too difficult for Job to handle. That's God's logic, and it's just right on point. And I, I think this particular question in these pair of questions, but really in 10b, I think this is the one that broke Job. Because Job is not just having this terrifying creature painted for him visually with all this description, but God is tying it to himself and saying, you have no power over this beast. You have no power over me. You cannot stand up to this beast. And guess what? We're not really talking about Leviathan. We're talking about me. You cannot stand up to me. You cannot conquer this beast. You cannot run the universe. You cannot challenge me. This is what God is doing. He's, this is application for Job. And I think this is what just breaks him. He's just like, okay, so God is not actually just talking about these animals. He's talking about how foolish it would be for anyone to challenge one of these animals. And he's saying to me through these examples how foolish it is for me to challenge him. That's what God is trying to say and, and convey. And I think Job gets it, and that's why he's destroyed in the next chapter. This verse really, really gets him. I like uh, in verse 11a, it speaks to the aseity of God. Uh, and that has to do with God being self-sustaining and self-sufficient. That's what aseity means. It's a doctrinal term. Uh, basically, no one lends or gives to God, okay? Why? Because He is the giver with a capital G. He is the provider. He is the creator. So, so no one in any sort of way gives to God. You know, we talk about how we give glory to God. Well, we, we certainly attempt to do that, but God has all the glory He ever needs, but we still want to glorify Him and give glory to Him. Now, if we fail to do that, we don't take glory from Him. He's in His aseity. He is self-glorifying for all eternity. So, but God is not someone that we give to. He, even though we give our gifts and offerings to Him and to His cause, but really what we're doing is benefiting the church so the church can propagate the gospel. But at the end of the day, God has everything He needs. He has a saity. He's self-sustaining. We don't keep Him alive. We don't keep Him in glory. He is the one who gives all things. And that is the point that's being Made here. This is the aseity of God that is being dealt with. Self-sustaining, self-sufficient. No one lends to him. No one gives to him. He alone is creator. He alone is giver. And uh, 
I would just simply say that what God is trying to convey here is that Leviathan has its being because of God. And Job has his being because of God. God gives all his creatures, man and beast alike, their being, their sustenance, their care, their dwelling places. This is represented in a number of verses, Genesis 1, 24 to 27 and Psalm 147, verse 9, Matthew 5, 45, Acts 17, 26. In other words, God gives but owes no one. He is not indebted to His creatures. His creatures are indebted to Him. God owed Job zero, zilch, but we have already learned through previous texts that Job thought God owed him a great many things, right? An explanation for his suffering, some kind of justice. Certainly owe me deliverance. I'm a righteous man. You owe me all these things. God is saying, I owe you nothing. I owe you nothing. And yet, this is what's the miracle There is the grace and mercy of God. Even though he doesn't owe anyone anything other than justice, he is merciful and he does choose in his love and in his infinite wisdom, in his care, in his mercy, to give some mercy to some. So, But he doesn't owe Job anything. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe Leviathan anything. He owes nothing, and yet he does give mercy because he is merciful, he gives it to his creatures, and he does these things in his own timing, not when we demand them. This is what's being conveyed here in the text. He is really correcting Job pretty heavily now because Job has got this completely backwards. Uh, In 11b, God has to remind Job that everything under heaven is his. It belongs to me, Job. Not to you. When you question me about all things or about your suffering, you're questioning my ownership. You're questioning my sovereignty over these things. He is saying, I own everything. The earth and all that is in it belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says it just like that. And the fact of the matter is, this is something that I don't think Job cared for or we don't care for at times. Since God owns it all, He can do whatever He wants with it whenever He wants. You have that privilege when it all belongs to you. In fact, it's expressed in a number of ways in the text. Uh, you know, I will, it says, God says, I will kill, I will make alive, I will wound, I will heal, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy uh, 32, verse 39, that's a truth that we really like when it favors us, but when it doesn't, we say, oh, I don't know, maybe that's just the devil or whatever. We blame it on something, but the fact of the matter is God owns it all and can do whatever He wants with it whenever He wants. And the fact is that Job had forgotten these important truths. He remembered them up front when the suffering first came, but over time he forgot them. And I think now he's starting to remember them once again. God is, 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 is rebuking me. He's using the animals to rebuke me. He's helping me understand that the animals need him for their sustenance and survival. I need him for my sustenance and survival. The animals don't rule over God. He, has, he, he could conquer any animal anytime. They all belong to him. He exercises sovereign control over them. He does the same thing with me. If my life's a mess, it's because of God. And somehow there's a good purpose in it. This is a lesson that he needs to learn. These are the things that he's really starting to finally put together that he may have understood and had forgotten. Finally, he's starting to remember, and he shows it in the next chapter. Let's move to the second A. We've talked about his autonomy. Now we need to talk about Leviathan's anatomy, which is threaded through the autonomy text too, but it's really expressed in verses 12 through 30. Verse 12, God says, I'm not done with you yet, Job. 
I will not keep silent concerning Leviathan's limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. God is basically saying, I am not done yet. I know that you're weeping. I know that you're starting to feel pretty broken and some contrition there, but I've got more to say. I want to describe more features on this beast. I'm not going to be silent regarding its limbs or its frame. And then in verses 13 to 30, God, he just unleashed a barrage of anatomical details that were meant to illustrate his creative power and sovereign control over all creatures, behemoth, leviathan, man, and especially Job. And that's another reality that Job had forgotten about. Now we move to 13 to 21. This is a bigger section. God says, who can strip off his outer garment? Speaking of leviathan, who would come near him with a bridle? That's pretty funny. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shield. We talked about that earlier. Uh, shut up closely as with a seal. Uh, one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. I mean, this guy, this, this creature's body armor is like linked together chainmail, but it's in the form of shields. Verse 18, his sneezing, here we go, his sneezings, when this animal sneezes, it flashes forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Verse 19, out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning, rush, uh, and burning rushes. Verse 21, his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes from his mouth. Stop there. Is this a dragon? I mean, what is this thing? God asks Job three rhetorical questions, and then he goes ahead and answers them. So he asks and then gives answers. God is an expert teacher. This is the best way to teach. You ask a question and you answer it. And he does this three times. The first question is, who can strip off Leviathan's outer garment or hide? Verse 13a. What is the answer, do you think? What person could do this? Could you do this, Job? The answer is no, you could not do this to this creature. Why is that? Because his back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. It's like the outer ex exterior of this animal is like airtight. Everything is so woven together in all this armor or thick flesh-like leather. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to be able to strip off this creature's hide because it's just too tough. He says, uh, one is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Again, it's the idea of things that are chain-linked together, and that's in verses 15 to 17. You can't skin this beast, Job. It can't be done. Can you do it, Job? No. Uh, you cannot skin it. The epidermis is like rows of layered bronze shields. Uh, second one, who, who would come near him with a bridle? Verse 13b. What is a bridle? It is the headgear that is used to control a horse, consisting of buckled straps, a bit and reins, slides over the horse's head, right? And this is followed immediately by who can open the doors of his face? Verse 14a. Uh, what does the doors of his face, what does that represent? That's his mouth. That is the doors to his face, his mouth. And of course, the answer to this question, could you bridle this thing? Could you maybe pry open its mouth and shove in a bit like you would a horse? 
The answer again is no way. There's no way you could do that. Now here's where God, those are the rhetorical questions. Here where God, here's where God answers each one. Okay, he gives five reasons why Job or no man would be able to handle a Leviathan like this, to bridle it, to put a bit in its mouth, to tame it, or any of that. The answers are right here in the text. A, why couldn't you do that? Because his teeth are razor sharp, verse 14b. How does God say it? Around his teeth is terror. So this particular creature has pointed, sharp teeth. You're not going to open the door to its face, tamper with its mouth, because it has razor-sharp teeth. Its teeth are terrifying. Here's another reason why you're not going to be able to bridle or deal with this beast. B, his sneezes. Okay, now if this animal lived in the Central Valley, it'd be sneezing all the time because it'd have allergies. His sneezes are literally like bolts of lightning coming out of his nose. That's what he says here. Verse 18. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. This thing sneezes in front of you, you get cooked by high current. All right? Why else couldn't you bridle or bit this creature? See, he spits flames and sparks from his mouth. Verse 9. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Um, Again, Another answer here. Why couldn't you bridle or bit this creature? D, he exhales smoke from his nose. Verse 20, uh, out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. I don't even know what a burning rush is. Uh, And then the last one, why couldn't you bridle or bit this creature? Because his breath is like a blowtorch, right? Verse 21, his breath kindles coals, and flame comes forth from his mouth. Okay, so in other words, when he put it all together, no one is going to try to slip a bridle over Leviathan's head or open his mouth to insert the bit because he has razor-sharp teeth and he breathes smoke and fire. Again, what does this creature sound like? Sounds like a dragon, doesn't it? And of course... Because I like reading and I like books. I like dragons. I think they're kind of cool. And the dragon that comes to mind here would be, yes, Rachel just mouthed it, Smaug, right? You know who Smaug is? You're right, the ancient guardian, yeah, the, ancient, the, the ancient dragon guardian of, uh, what's it called? It's called the Lonely Mountain where all the treasure is. You're thinking Lord of the Rings here, The Hobbit, right? That's what comes to mind here. What else does Smaug do? Does he not only guard that treasure, but he torments Lake Town, right? The town that's right at the base of the mountain on the lake where all the people live there. They're all fishermen and all that. This, this sounds like Tolkien's Smaug to me. And I wonder, I didn't research it, but I wonder if Tolkien got his inspiration for Smaug, because he wrote this a long time ago, if he got it from Job 41. It wouldn't surprise me at all because the man did stuff like that. So this could be, Smaug may come from this text. But now, it just, were there dragons during the prehistoric period when there were, um, you know, dinosaurs? I don't know. I don't know. I've always thought of dragons as being mythological, right? Certainly part of English myth. They're, the English are always battling dragons in all the movies. 
You know what I mean? It's like, oh my goodness, we've got dragons. This one's called Hitler. You know what I mean? They just, they were always dealing with them. King Arthur, you think of that stuff. But maybe this is just a marine dinosaur that had really, really bad hot breath like I do when I wake up. Right? Just like, you've heard of the term, like, if you have really bad breath, people say, man, you got dragon breath. Dragon breath. I don't know. It, the, the trick here is, is that the animal is not being spoken about as a metaphor here. It's not being spoken about mythologically. So at some point in history, there was a creature that fit this description that roamed the earth. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sad about extinction. But when it comes to Leviathan, I'm happy. I mean, could you imagine this thing? We should turn it loose in Washington. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to say that. Getting out of control, the protester would be like, it's time to go home, you know. This is a scary, scary animal. It's not something that you would try to bridle, control, put on a leash for your girls. Glad I have boys. Hey, boys, go walk the Leviathan. I mean, this is just, this is nonsense, and it's meant to be nonsense because what Job is doing is nonsense, right? You give me nonsense, God says, I give you nonsense back. Go take care of this animal. Verses 22 to 24, he's, <laughs> we could just stop. It's a dragon. It's real scary. We can stop. No, God's not done. Still got many verses. Verses 22 to 24. In his neck, Leviathan's neck, abides strength, and terror dances before him. Okay? If there was a dance called terror, it'd be popping and locking in front of this creature. The folds of his flesh stick together. Firmly, I know, that's stupid. The folds of his flesh stick together. Firmly cast on him and immovable. And listen to the inside of this beast. All, we, all God's been talking about to Job is the exterior, right? And then now the teeth we're talking about, and we're talking about its breath. So we're kind of going on the inside of the animal. Listen to what he says in verse 24. God says, in Leviathan's heart, it is as hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. God is not speaking metaphorically about this animal having a cold heart and being cruel. He is talking about its physiology, its insides. What God is doing here ultimately is describing Leviathan's powerful upper shoulders, its strong neck. You're not going to wrestle this thing. Uh, You're not going to be able to capture this creature. Its head and its neck are just too powerful. They're going to knock over your house. He's just too strong. Uh, It talks about here how he strikes terror in those who appear before him. If you were standing on the coast, and of course they believed this creature existed in the Mediterranean, that's the nearby sea, but if you were standing on the beach, and, and think Loch Ness Monster, but way worse, if you were standing on the beach and this thing came up out of the water and went down, you wouldn't sit there and go, hey, get my binoculars. You would head, you would head for the donkey and then ride back home. You would get out of there. You would not sit there. And, I mean, if it was way off in the distance, maybe, but this, this was not something. Terror dances before him. You would run. It, it, it literally talks about it here. It, terror dances before him, meaning that frightened people would literally, as soon as they see it, they would run in the opposite direction, fearing for their lives. Now, the folds of his flesh, you see that there in, uh, what, in verse 23? This is speaking of its underbelly. In the animal kingdom, the underbelly of the high majority of animals is the weak spot. 
even in Hollywood movies, you always see people aiming for the underbelly. Even with Smaug, they're aiming for the underbelly or that glowing spot on his underbelly where his heart would be. So the underbelly of any given beast is the weak spot. And by the way, even with the hippo, it has, a strong, it has strong muscles here to keep it buoyant or in place in the river, but that's the weak spot. If you aim for something, aim for that. And what God is saying here is that the underbelly on this animal, it sticks together. It is immovable. Why? Because it's like sheets of armor, sheets of steel. So what is God telling Job? There isn't a weak spot you can aim for. There's no weak spot here. If a, and, and God says, just in case, if a valiant soldier, warrior, man, whomever, Wonder Woman, if someone was, was able to breach Leviathan's exterior defenses, to get through the underbelly, to get through this armor, if they, if they, if they positioned their bow and arrow just right and got, and remember it talks about how it's airtight, but if they just slipped a weapon past the exterior defenses, somehow God is saying it would still have no effect because the creature's heart is like a lower millstone, which in grinding stones is the hardest of the grinding stones. So what would a spear, javelin, sword, arrow do, even if it penetrated and got through? It would go and bounce off the heart because the heart was a very, very strong, metallic-like muscle. You're not going to hurt this thing. God is saying even the internal organs of Leviathan are incredibly tough, nearly impossible to destroy with ancient weapons. That's what God is saying. He is just building the, just how this creature is, is just, no one has a chance. No one can take it down. Of course, the parallel is, and I'm the one that created it, so how much more glorious and amazing am I? That's the point. Verse 25, listen to this, more scare tactic. When Leviathan raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. And the crashing, and at the crashing, they are beside themselves. I love that phrase. God tells Job that when Leviathan raises himself up from the water, like think of a whale or a shark. You know how they thrust themselves with their powerful tails and come up out of the water? Leviathan has a powerful tail. And when it thrusts itself up through the surface in the air, it strikes fear in men. This is the point of them standing on the beach. They see this thing come up. They don't sit there and go, oh, cool. Get the camera, Marcy. They are terrified. They are afraid when they see this thing. And not only that, but when it flies into the air, it says the mighty become afraid. And then it says a, a kind of a double thing here. It says when he goes up, they are afraid. And then when it comes back down and splashes back into the water like a whale or a big shark, it says the mighty, they're afraid, but now they are beside themselves. I love how the Septuagint puts it. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It uses the word here for the phrase beside themselves. It uses the word phobia. That's the Greek word phobia. What do you think we get from it? Or it's phobios or uh, it's uh, phobos, actually. I'm sorry, phobos. We get our word phobia from it. And here it means to be gripped by terror. So when it lunges itself up out of the water, the most mighty men are afraid. When it splashes back down in the water, the terror goes up and they flee running in all directions. They're gripped by terror. 
Again, you can't handle this beast, Job. How are you going to handle the universe? Verses 26 to 30, though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, nor the dart, or the javelin. Uh, listen to this, that Leviathan counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Uh, they're like toothpicks bouncing off of him. Uh, the arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp uh, potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing, uh, like a threshing sledge on the mire. Now this is all poetic description, but it's it's quite poignant and good. Basically, God is letting Job know uh, just how ineffective the weapons of his day would be or are against Leviathan. The sword, the spear, the dart, the javelin, these are all ancient weapons. These were modern weapons for Job's day. These were the weapons of war. God says, all of these weapons, they're very, very good when it's man on man. Don't work too good against a behemoth, but man, I tell you what, when they reach, when these weapons reach the Leviathan, what happens? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing happens. They have no avail. They have no effect whatsoever on him. Uh, Iron and bronze weapons, they're like straw to this creature. They're not strong. They're strong to us. They can do a lot of damage, but they have no effect on him. They're like straw to him. You know, uh, smacking him with a sword is like smacking him with a piece of straw or like throwing a hay bale at him. It doesn't have any kind of effect. It's like rotten wood. What is rotten wood? Dry rot. What does dry rot do when you discover it? It just comes apart in your fingers. It comes apart in your hands. This is all the description he's saying. None of your weapons formed against this creature will work. He even says arrows cannot make him flee. So when there's a bunch of archers just letting him go, they're just like, tink, 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 tink. They just bounce off of him. He doesn't run when he sees a bunch of archers. It says, uh, God says for him, sling stones, which were another weapon they used. Think David and Goliath. Those don't do anything. They bounce off of him like a pebble. Uh, They're turned to stubble. And he even mentions clubs. So he's using every kind of weapon they had back then, swords, javelins, spears, you know, um, even clubs, sometimes clubs would be used. Those are nothing more than stubble to this creature. In fact, he, and I think the most deadly weapon of all in this whole list of weapons would be the javelin because you can take out an enemy from 50, 60 yards with a javelin. He won't even see it coming. It just flies through the air and boom, goes right through him. It says here, he laughs at those. People are like, I got it, I got it. He's like, like Smaug, right? That's how Smaug laughed, I think. Not going to happen, not working. Nothing is going to work against him. Uh, Why are none of these weapons, these sharp pointy weapons effective against him? Because of his natural body armor. His underparts are like potsherds. What is a potsherd? Visualize with me broken pottery. That's what potsherd is. It's a piece of broken pottery. So God is telling us that this creature's outer covering was rigid, jagged, and sharp like broken pieces of pottery. Again, what kind of imagery comes to mind? Certainly some kind of prehistoric dinosaur, definitely dragons, because they had the armor, but they also had the points and all that jaggedness on there, almost like bark, but with points. Um, And God even takes a moment here to mention 
the animal's natural habitat, right? It, it had to be some kind of a, a swamp-like base. And so the animal definitely, part of his habitat was the sea, but probably he could enter onto land and he would go into a swamp-like area, maybe along a riverbed or something like that, kind of like a hippo. Uh, but I still think he's more of a marine creature than some kind of a semi-aquatic. But God says here that when he moves about in his natural habitat, he makes marks in the sledge of the mire. Meaning when he moves back and forth like a serpent and walks through his natural habitat on the, the, the mud and the mush, it leaves a trail because of how jagged his uh, epidermis is. So if you were walking along a river that was maybe close to the sea and you saw these drag marks in the riverbed or along the, along the edge of the water, you, know, you would know what was there. You, you would know that there had been a leviathan there, so, which means you would probably choose to picnic on a different river that day or just get the heck away from the water. So he leaves marks in the sledge of the mire like a dredge would do. Now we can move to the final A. So that's all anatomy. And it, it just, this is a terrifying creature. Number three, we're going to look at his agility. And this is quick. We're moving fast and we're almost done. Verses 31 to 34, we'll look at 31 and 32. Uh, God says this about him. He's talking about how he can move and what he can do. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. Uh, one would think the deep to be white-haired. Stop there. God tells Job that Leviathan can basically dive deep below the water's surface. Um, and this creature either had gills, which I doubt, um, or he could just simply hold his breath for a long time. And I think that's probably more like it. You know, frogs are amphibious. They start out as a tadpole. They can breathe underwater, but then later on they lose the gills and they breathe above water. Some would say, oh, that's what this thing could do. I don't think it was an amphibian at all. I think that it just could hold its breath for a long time. And he could literally dive way down to the sea floor, to the bottom of a river or something like that. He had the ability to, he was a deep diver, so he could hold his breath. And what's being described here isn't the heat from his mouth or nose making the water boil because we already know he's got some fire and stuff going on there. But what, it, what God is describing is that when this creature swims down to the seabed, when it's moving around on the seabed, it stirs up all the muck and mire which floats to the surface and makes it look like a boiling pot, right? You get a bunch of foam and stuff at the surface because this thing is doing this on the bottom. That's what he's describing here. In fact, he uses some really explicit imagery. It's a boiling... It, he, he, he basically churns up the depths like it looks like there's a boiling pot on the surface. And it says he stirred up the sea like a, po a pot of ointment, basically just causing the mud and sediment to rise to the surface and become a foam. I would just say in my last set of jokes that this dude was like a big blender. That's what he was. I mean, he was just like a big blender. He, would, he was so powerful that when he was in the water, he would stir stuff up. Probably that tail swinging back and forth would probably kill fish and stuff, and they'd go up too. When he swam along the surface of the sea, God says here, he left a shining wake. Have you ever been water skiing? You know the white water wake behind a boat? That's what he's talking about here. So this thing was such a powerful swimmer, when it swam on the surface, it left bubbles. Uh, it left a white shining wake, so much so that God describes it here. Like if somebody saw that, they would say something like, wow, it looks like the sea has gray hair or white hair. 
So that's the idea. Such a powerful swimmer, it leaves a shining wake as a ski boat would, as a cruise ship would, which Chrissy and Dustin are going to discover very soon in a couple of weeks. Praise the Lord for you. So this guy is very, very powerful. When he swims, he stirs stuff up. When he swims on the surface, it looks like a boat was there. Verses 33 and 34, our last descriptions. On the earth, there is not his like. It almost sounds like Yoda. You know how he always says stuff like, no, he always says things backwards. On earth, there is not his like. In other words, there's nothing like him. A creature literally without fear. Verse 34, he sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's it. That's the end of this whole thing. As a result of all that had been stated about the Leviathan, God concluded that on earth there's just nothing like him. There's no creature out there like him. This beast of all the beasts is literally so big, so powerful, so dangerous, it has no fear at all. No fear of anything. None. God is saying it's not going to back down even if an army is pressing against it. It's going to stand its ground. Um, this beast was incomparable with behemoth and all the other animals. God used the behemoth as a first example, which was potent, but then he saved the best for last. Leviathan would eat behemoth, no questions asked. There's nothing like this animal. It was so powerful, so well protected. It wasn't afraid of man or beast. It wasn't afraid of an army for that matter. And at the same time that he wasn't afraid of anything, people lived in absolute terror of him. That's what has been conveyed in the text. Uh, the, the Leviathan looked down on all who were prideful, like anyone who would say, ha ha, I'm better than it, I could take it out. It looked down on every kind of prideful person that would say something like that or think that way. Um, it possessed an exalted position of supremacy over all the other creatures, man and beast, because it was so formidable. Um, it's even called here the king over the sons of pride. Pride's never a good thing. This animal was the most prideful because it was the baddest in the world. So in a way, it is the king over all who are prideful. And that includes Job, who was prideful. He was prideful. He had become puffed up with pride in defending himself against God over and over and over, or defending himself before God, I should say. God has made clear, there's no defense against me. Uh, and that's the end of the text. We can wrap up now. Closing, what is the point? What is the point? If Job is going to replace God and run the universe, he needs to possess what God possesses, sovereign control. He will need to demonstrate his attribute or this attribute, the sovereign control attribute by either slaying the Leviathan or with a sharp weapon or by controlling it with a bridle and bit by turning it into a pet for his girls. Of course, his girls had passed away, unfortunately, but he'll get new ones in the next chapter. Um, what was Job's reaction to this crazy, crazy, sarcastic kind of test? Well, I, I know for a fact he knew he couldn't meet this challenge. So I think he just stood there with his head down in humiliation, and I think he was embarrassed because he finally got the message. He finally figured it out. This cross-examination, I think, was the straw that finally broke the back of uh, you know, Job's pride. This, this nuked him because in the next chapter we see that. By way of application for us, just as the behemoth was, the Leviathan was a terrifying creature, no doubt. 
If a platoon of valiant soldiers challenged Leviathan to kind of hand-to-hand combat, they had their javelins and all that, this fierce beast would easily smash, scrunch, or scorch that platoon to death. It would kill them all in a matter of seconds. Maybe with one breath, it would kill them. And yet the point of the text is, yes, as fierce and dangerous as it is, it would be no match for God. Amen? God is the bigger Leviathan in the text. He is the greater Leviathan, so to speak. There is no creature in creation that can take on the Creator. God exercises total sovereign power and control over all things, including the entire animal kingdom, with its terrifying creatures. Today it would be lions, and lions, tigers, and bears, and hippos, and all of these animals, rhinos. They're pretty scary snakes. God exercises control over all of those creatures, everything that's dangerous, all the terrifying creatures uh, uh, throughout history, Leviathan, Behemoth, T-Rex, you name it, God has power and control over all of the animal kingdom. Last Sunday, I did describe some terrifying creatures we face every day that are equally no match for God. Depraved sinners who are hell-bent on spreading their sexual perversions, especially to our children now, tyrannical governments that impose endless taxes and are constantly working to erode our freedoms. Uh, And of course, I mentioned a few more, but at the end of that summary, I mentioned the devil and the demons who are always assaulting us with endless temptations, some of which we give in to, sadly. We're just under constant threat by terrifying creatures. And I just want to talk about the devil again just for a moment. I don't like talking about him in my sermons. Uh, I'd rather talk about Christ, but he is in the Scripture and we need to deal with him. Playing off of last week, ending with the devil. The devil, and this is application, the devil is identified by many other names in Scripture. Okay, he doesn't just go by devil. Okay, Adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. Enemy, Matthew 13.39. Father of lies. I like that title. He is the father of lies, John 8.44. And, of course, we know his other name that's probably is just as popular as the devil, and that would be Satan. He's called Satan, 1 Chronicles 21.1. Now, I'm going to give you five more names, and I want you to pay close attention to them and see how they parallel with this text. These are other names for the devil. Serpent. What have we been talking about? A serpent. Serpent. Genesis 3.4, Genesis 3.16. You're thinking of the fall there. 2 Corinthians 11.3, not only serpent, another name, ancient serpent. He's called the ancient serpent. Revelation 12.9b, Revelation 22b. How about this one, dragon? The devil is called a dragon. Isaiah 27.1, Revelation 13.2 and verse 4, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2a. Not only a dragon, but a great dragon, the great dragon, right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 9a. And here is the kicker, Leviathan. Hmm. The devil is called Leviathan. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. In that verse, he's called a dragon and he's called Leviathan. Leviathan. In fact, the, in Scripture, the word Leviathan, it is used to describe a physical creature, right? Job 41, this is a marine dinosaur, dragon-like creature. 
This word Leviathan is used also to describe a metaphorical creature, Israel's enemies. We learned this earlier, Psalm 74, verse 14. And this word Leviathan is used to describe a spiritual creature, the devil, Isaiah 27, verse 1. Now, here is the kicker. The beautiful thing about Isaiah 27.1 is that it predicts God's victory over the spiritual Leviathan, the devil. Totally predicts it. How cool is that? It says this, In that day the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Wow, what a verse. Now, here's the deal. This is a prophecy about God slaying the spiritual Leviathan, the devil. It is, and I believe it has partially already come to pass. It has come true. How do I know this? The Lord Jesus, what did He do? He bruised the serpent's head, Leviathan, the spiritual Leviathan, at Calvary when He did what? When He died on the cross, He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is Genesis 3.15, Colossians 2.15. So in, uh, in, in this beautiful passage, 27 verse 1 of Isaiah, we have a prophecy saying that the Lord will destroy Leviathan. And we have a partial fulfillment of the destruction of the devil Leviathan at the cross. Amen? And we know that the Lord Jesus will finish the job, right? When He returns, He will finish the job when He hurls the devil, the spiritual Leviathan, into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 20, verse 10. How do we not connect this to our text? It's amazing. The spiritual Leviathan, the devil, was and will be defeated by the Lord Jesus. He was stripped of his power over us at the cross. That is a defeat. And he will be stripped of his power in the world at the lake of fire. He will be gone for good. My Encouragement to us, my exhortation to me and to you, is may we rest in the Lord's victory. May we walk in His freedom. May we fight the good fight of faith with His gospel. And may we be ready for His glorious return.